Welcome to the Tony Talks Wealth Podcast. This show is dedicated to helping you manage your money better, invest wisely, retire early, and grow your wealth for you and your family and live your best life. My name is Tony Thomas, Charter Financial Planner, Pension Specialist, and Money Coach. I've advised thousands of people over the last 30 years. I'm going to share with you real life stories and everything that you need to know to build a financially secure future and a great lifestyle. If you enjoy the podcast, then feel free to subscribe and leave a review. Now let's dive into today's episode on the Tony Talks Wealth Podcast. I'm really pleased to be joined by Karen Newton on today's show. Karen is an international author, speaker, and wealth coach, and a very successful property entrepreneur. So thank you very much for joining me today, Karen. Thank you, Tony. I am delighted to be on here. That's good to know. (laughs) Uh, Karen, for those who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about you, what you do, and your story so far? Okay, so um, I'm actually British, born in London, and... uh, My dad was a professional soccer player, Uh, my mum a housewife, and in those days professional soccer players didn't make as much money as they do today, so my dad had to have a second job. I gotta ask who your dad played for. Um, He played for Gillingham. Right, okay. And he played for Torquay United. Okay. he had to have a way of making a living and he worked on the railways. And when the railways were going through the close down, um, he moved to Wales. And that's how um, I ended up being raised in Wales from about the age of um, five. And from there, um, basically, I will say I was not clever at school. I was just your average person at school, if if you could say average, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And um, when I left school, I was doing um, my O-levels and I had the chance to leave school and get a job. And it was at the time where unemployment in Wales was really high. Um, There was something like one in six was unemployed. This was back in the 70s and we were down on three-day weeks and things like that. And I had a chance to get a job with the uh, government uh, in the civil service. And it was, that's a job for life in those days. If you can get in there, you take it. It certainly was, yeah. I applied to work in the um, National Statistics Office. And I got a message saying, congratulations, you've been accepted for Inland Revenue. (laughs) So uh, one job I applied for was in Newport, excuse me. I ended up working in Pontypool and I spent four and a half years uh, mainly working with um, self-employed in what was called Schedule D in those days. So I learned all about balance sheets, profit and loss, accounts. I I got thrown in from the inland revenue side. So uh, that was my first introduction to working with money. And I met my husband, who was a New Zealander. He was on a working holiday in the UK. We got married and we moved out to New Zealand. And I went into banking in New Zealand. And the day I started work for local bank, 
it was a, it was a local savings bank. It had operated in a caravan up until when I started. It went into its premises uh, the day I arrived and the first ATM in New Zealand went in on that day. And so the, so very, my... the very origins of uh, mobile banking and uh, uh, ATMs then? New Zealand was just so advanced because this is 82, 1982. And we literally had online banking, instant online banking, because you could make your deposits in the ATM and then take your passbook, you, you deposit your money in the ATM, you'd go to the teller, you'd say, can you update my passbook for me? And there was your deposit in, the, in your passbook. So we, we, we were the first to have genuine online banking. And people used to come from all around the world to see how the system worked. Yeah, I bet so. It's uh, yeah, that's it was. That's the origins, really. Uh, by the sounds of it, I don't remember where it's uh, what year it started in the UK, but it was certainly well behind eighty-two. Yeah, well, New Zealand is um, a very. <clears throat> At the time, there was a population of about three million people. Yeah, I think it's five now, but there was about three million then, and we used to be the testing ground for technology. We had, you know, late 80s, I had a mobile phone, I had internet, and I would be traveling and I could connect my mobile phone to my laptop computer that I had, get my emails off there in the late 80s. Well, I remember seeing the first mobile phones and uh, I started my career in uh, financial services then. And uh, one of the guys there had the first mobile we saw, but it was more like that big walkie-talkie yeah. type of things. Um, and uh, again, how that uh, changed since then? You know, we, we had um, VCRs and there was like um, VHS and Beta. And I can remember the big battle going on in New Zealand as to who was going to um, win the market there because i think that was the one that was then going to be run out through the other countries and yeah it was it was really quite fascinating to have come from the outside and come into new zealand and actually see the way it worked because i say it was a testing ground people wouldn't have thought of it as a testing ground no they were just getting new technology yeah. but then when i went back to uk they'd never heard of any of the stuff that we were using so for a small country, it was very advanced in what it did. So anyway, I was in banking. I, um, because it was a small bank, I had phenomenal amount of um, promotional opportunities as the bank grew. I started work, like I said, with the ATMs. Um, and we had one ATM card, but all your different bank accounts were connected to it. So you just had one card and you said, that's my investment, that's my savings account, that's my check account. And you nominated which one you wanted to pay the money into. Uh, well, it's amazing because in theory, you can't even do that. Now, yes, you can no. do it via your own banking, but you can't do it just by one card in an ATM. Yeah. And that's what we're doing in 82. So um, from there, I went into the bank's head office. And I worked in um, accounting department. And in those days, uh, you 
I think we still got checks. We? You'd have a check. I have a checkbook. I don't use it very often, <laughs> but maybe once and a year if I'm lucky. So There's a magnetic um, code number across the bottom. And my f- job when I went into head office was every time somebody wrote out a check and deposited it with the bank, I had to go through and encode the physical amount of the check onto the bottom of the check. Yeah. That then went through to um, a company, this name I forget now, and they were the clearing house for all the checks. So every bank put their checks in there. Uh, I mean, it took seconds for millions of checks to go through. And then um, each bank got a list of what was debited. So because we were um, online banking, they were able to debit our customers' accounts straight away. But other banks okay. that didn't have online banking, they had to manually process the checks against and the clients' and um, cleaning, accounts. Cleaning time is much longer then. So, yeah. yeah. And then uh, from there, I moved into um, IT department. And as we were then expanding the ATM machines, I had the job of... Um, <laughs> The, the ticker tape programs for the machines, I had to punch them all and then take them to code the, um, the new ATM that went out. And when branches rang up and said, oh, we had a problem loading the program or updating the program today, we broke the tape, but I have to code a new tape and uh, take it out to them. It was quite a bit of fun, actually. Um, that didn't and... seem quite as advanced at the time, so <laughs> not, not compared to today. Not today, <laughs> yeah. And then after that, I had the job of moving um, mortgages from a manual system onto an online system. And I basically stayed around the mortgage systems really for the rest of my, my time with the bank because I was the one who put it online. I knew what happened and even though I got promoted into other areas of the bank I was like the consultant that had to come back and um, look at things if somebody had stuffed something up or if a if a mortgage didn't fit the parameters of the software I was the one that had to go in and manipulate the mortgage so that it would work on the system so throughout the banking I, I was the one that ended up going back because I I was about the only one left in the bank who had that knowledge from initially putting it on. I worked in Visa. So I worked with Visa. I worked in foreign exchange. I did lending. I did securities. Um, I was a a relief manager for the bank. Uh, Someone on holiday or sick, I'd go into the branch and manage the branch. So, yeah, I, like I said, I, I was in the, the right place at the right time. I learned a massive amount of banking. Well, you certainly had good grounding in the, in, um, in the money issues, you've like, because obviously being in the Indian revenue, you see one aspect, being in the banking yeah. sector, you see another aspect. I was in the banking sector uh, for many years. So, you know, I learned a huge amount from that as well and it spurs you on to other things i think for you as well you obviously was uh, involved in the mortgage side did that spur you on to get into property or was it something else that spurred you on in terms of the no property? it was um later um 
I always knew I wanted to be wealthy and I wanted to make yeah. money, <laughs> but I never quite knew how to pull it together. And one of the things that really fascinated me that I learned in banking was the compounding effect. Okay. Eighth and, wonder of the world. Yeah. It should be the first wonder of the world. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> should be in not... schools anyway. should be t- taught in schools, number one subject. Yeah. yeah. So how I uh, latched onto that is that we would take uh, fixed-term deposits and we'd have like 30 days, 60 days, six months, 12 months, two, three years. You know, we had a whole range yeah. of fixed-term deposits. But it depended on what the economy was doing as to how the interest rates were set. And the bank would set the best interest rate for how long it wanted you to put the money in. Yeah. All right, so if they wanted your money for 12 months, yeah. the 12-month fixed-term deposit would be the highest interest rate. Yeah. But then one day I worked out that I could take the 30-day fixed term deposit I could add the interest on and at the end of 12 months I would have earned more interest than if I put it in for 12 months yeah and that was like a light bulb moment for me you know because I suddenly thought wow what can I do if I can keep repeating this in everything that I do yeah yeah so that became yeah that the compounding effect became a real key to my investing strategies and it's it's what i teach now with clients um monthly dividend shares reinvest you you know it's reinvest them (laughs) and people say but i get more money (laughs) they say but i get more money if i do this and i say no you don't you just gotta work it out it's you know so that's one of the strategies that i teach but um I'd actually, like I said, I liked the money aspects, but I hadn't actually worked out how to get into property. Okay. And um, I had a pretty severe car crash and I couldn't work. And as a result of that, I had to call on everything I'd learned about banking to be able to make money, things I'd learned from people who'd been in business who were clients of the bank, um, all that sort of stuff. And one of um, my what friends... What year was this, Karen? So. Oh, this was back in 1990. Okay. Late, in the 90s, yeah. Yeah. And um, one of my friends came in and he said to me, you've got to read this book. And it was... Um, Robert Kiyosaki, Shannon Lecter's book, The Cashflow Quadrant. So I I went through it and I thought, to be honest, everybody raves about it, but it wasn't a book that did that much for me. I did like it. And I went and then got Rich Dad, Poor Dad, so that I got the full continuity of it. And that made me start to see things slightly differently. And I started to see ways that I thought... I could pull things together. And then the same friend came back to me and he said, um, I've actually got tickets to go and see Robert Kiyosaki in Auckland. Do you want to go? And I said, yeah, I want to go. And he was launching his book, 
um, Rich Dad's Guide to Investing. Yeah, know that one too. And that was the book for me. The process that you went through, how you built the business, the different types of investors that you had, how you pulled everything together. And yeah, it was five and a half hour drive up to Auckland. Um, I'd had my accident. I couldn't actually sit in the car. I was strapped on. Um, the seat was put down and I was strapped on the car. I thought you could see on a stretcher then. So <laughs> It was, yeah, it was like a stretcher. Um, so up to Auckland, five and a half hours, saw him. Uh, was really lucky that he spent some time with me after the Did event. He? And we had a chat. Oh, it was just, my mind just went like this all over the place. Uh, five and a half hour trip back. And my husband had seen the same thing. And he was on the totally same wavelength. Yeah. And we decided we were going to, the next day, we were not going into work. We were sitting down. We read that book cover to cover. We put a plan together. And then the following, the plan was to sell the existing business that we had to um, move to Australia. And we felt the market in Australia, New Zealand's got, uh, at the time, it had 97% home ownership. Okay. So there wasn't really much of a market for yeah. us to get into rental property. Australia, on the other hand, had lots of opportunities. So we moved to Australia. But we'd only been there for three days where my mum died and we came back to the UK. Nice. We, I spent, I lost six members of my family in eight months. So all I did in the UK for eight months was hospitals and funerals. A tough time. And I saw so many opportunities in the mm. property market. And I had to wait 18 months before I could do anything because the system in the UK was you couldn't borrow any money yeah. until you'd been there 18 months. So we were patiently sat there waiting. And I got a job. I worked for a company, got made redundant twice, bought the company after I got made redundant the second time. Uh, that's certainly one way to do it. I must admit, it's, I don't know many people would do that, but why not? I, I needed a job. I needed a certain amount of income coming in and I was off buying property and going for it. And yeah, I built, uh, took four years to acquire 60 properties. Wow, that's amazing. So, and what, was, so what, what has been your strategy with the uh, properties? Is it uh, purely buy to let or was? Or how did you do it? it obviously, various different strategies with properties. So. The, I got into property. The first property we bought was um, we were living with my stepdad at the time because of my mum dying and my stepdad was elderly. And there was a house opposite. So we wanted that house so that we could move but he wanted company. So we would literally cross the road and we were on the other side of the road. Yeah. And so we got into that property. Uh, we asked for what was known as a gifted deposit. Yeah. I remember and those. <laughs> used to be able to do it. Yeah, I know. I know that. <laughs> the property was on the market for 54995 We asked them for a gifted deposit because... Both of us, I had my job, 
my husband had gone to work as a security guard with yeah. Curry's. Yeah. We both needed to work yeah. and we were both doing whatever we needed so that we could qualify for mortgages. Yeah. And um, we had the money, but we didn't have the deposit. Yeah. So we asked for a gifted deposit and they turned us down. And then um, about a, three or four weeks later, they dropped the price by 5,000. We went back in with the same offer. They turned us down again. A few months later, they dropped the price another five. And this went on for about six months. And eventually they listed the property for 39,000 with a gifted deposit. And we were there like a shot. So we already had all the finance, the bank yeah. gave us the money, uh, we got the property. We knew then that the street value was almost double. So all we had to do was paint and decorate it. Our strategy was always that we had to have four walls and a roof. It didn't yeah. matter what the interior was like, we could yeah. deal with the interior. We just needed four solid walls yeah, and a good zone, roof. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so we painted, we decorated, we sorted everything out in the house and we remortgaged. Yeah. Uh, we mortgaged it up at 65000 Okay, it's a good markup. Gave us money and we went to auction, property auction. And then we came up um, the valleys, we're yeah. up your way. Yeah. And we went into Mountain Ash nice. and we bought a property which was um, at auction, it failed to meet auction at £7,000. And we went to the auctioneer and we said, what do we need to do to get this property? And the auctioneer said, you need another £200. So for £7,200, yeah. we got the property. And that was a three-storey property. Uh, it had what I call brick curtains because the windows were all bricked up and it had, um, you know, wood where the door yeah. was. You have a yeah. screwdriver yeah. and we stood there. We hadn't looked inside before we bought it. We stood there and there was no floors in the house. So it was three story, a basement. We could see the basement and we could see the roof. If you was to start the game, would you do that without buy it without seeing it at auction? No. Right. Okay. So <laughs> that was a learning. That's a good learning point on that, isn't it? So, because there's some horror stories you have with uh, by the auction, and you yeah. probably just describe them. But um, I've got no doubt. Obviously, you've overcome those problems anyway. So what we did then was uh, it was what did it take? It took about six weeks for my husband to actually rebuild the inside of that property. But your partnership with Ron has been key to this because Ron is very uh, hands-on and, and obviously uh, can do a lot of the, the jobs that need to be done in these properties. So uh, that's, a, that's an important point, I think, to have you know, a partnership uh, with you and your yeah. husband uh, that can do this. So it's, uh, or people team up with somebody else that can help them do these things. So. My husband um, was a fire engineer in New yeah. Zealand. Right? So um, he was used to designing, um, working, well, not designing the interior buildings, but he had to um, design fire protection systems, sprinkler systems, alarm systems, because clients did not want their brand new fancy place yeah. 
with all these sprinkler heads hanging yeah. out all over yeah. the place. So he was very much involved in the design of buildings with clients. Yeah. And he understood plumbing. He yeah. understood electrical. Um, he understood the ways to lay things out and types of floors and roofing you needed. So, you know, he, he did have quite a, a background of information yeah. on that. And so he was able to go into the house. And like I said, we had four solid walls and a roof. Um, he just went in, he built all the, he built the interior of the house. He knew what he needed. We actually ran out of money before we finished that property. Okay. And, um, it was Christmas and we went to the bank and we said to the bank, can we get an overdraft? No. Can we get a loan? No. And we were there thinking, what on earth are we going to do? Because all we had to do was put the boiler in yeah. and that property was ready to go. Okay. And lo and behold, dear old Barclay card came along and said, we're increasing the limit on your credit card. And we were out the next day to buy the boiler. Present, was it? <laughs> Sunday Hudy prayers. Yeah, we were out. We uh, bought the boiler. The boiler went in and we rented that property out. And Did then you because we, that one as well? Yeah, because we had that finished, we were then able to remortgage. Yeah. That property at that stage, because we'd done all the work to it, it was 35000 the value, the street value then. We bought it at seven, it was thirty-five, And we remortgaged, we went back to auction. And in those days, we bought the properties. We got the one for seven two. We got one for 11000 one for, I think we got 13, 15, 17, and 19 was yeah. the last one that we bought. And then we'd managed to move the value of the houses up so much, remortgage, yeah. take cash out, that we then moved back to where we lived in Cumbran. And we, well, we actually started in Pontypool, which was like yeah. a different value. Yeah, yeah. And then we did the same in Pontypool, and then we moved into Cumbran, and um, we did the same in Cumbran. So we, we were in those three areas, and that was how we built it. We turned the property around in a month. We'd buy the property. We built relationships with um, estate agents yeah. and they would come to us and they'd say, hey, we've got a property. Uh, we haven't even got it on the market yet. It looks like it's something that you would like. Yeah. And we'd be viewing the property. We would do the deal and it never even went to market. And that was because of the relationships we built with the estate agents. I think that's one of the important points where this property or any other business is, uh, is to build that network around you. Uh, because then um, in most cases you can find what you need within that network and uh, life is much easier then. Uh, there's nothing yeah. worse than having to uh, keep chasing, should we say, uh, things where this uh, business uh, leads, property, whatever it is, uh, it's nice when it comes to you. Uh, life is so much easier. Well, we had a really good team um, because, like I said, we had the relationship with the estate agents. Yeah. Um, We'd gone, we'd, we'd been through a few brokers, but we had a, a really good broker at that yeah. stage. Um, we'd been through a few lawyers. I, me and lawyers don't get on very well. I sack a lot of them because they don't do things in my time frame. Yeah. And um, we had a good lawyer then. And what would happen is 
we'd get the property. We the firm we worked with, they had a lawyer who did the initial conveyancing and got everything yeah. registered with Inland Revenue. They then had a remortgage department. And basically, as soon as we said to our broker, um, this property will be ready to let next week. We want the valuer in. We want a, you know, a new mortgage on it now before the tenant goes in and the tenant can wreck the place. <laughs> we want it seen at its best. And um, the broker would have a mortgage, you know, in those days, an hour, and we had a new mortgage in place and the yeah. valuer was on his way out to look at the property. Yeah. Yeah. And the... Um, second lawyer had everything ready to go as soon as the um, mortgage documents came in. So we were able to turn properties around within a month. Well, again, that's... Get, uh, the, get the value up, yeah. release the equity in there, and go and get the next property. I can see, uh, I can see why then you were able to so quickly build a property portfolio um, with those types of time skills. Yeah, and we had, um, you know, the team we had at the time were absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, my husband and I, sorry, my husband and I were in Monaco. Yeah. It was our silver wedding anniversary. And yeah. we'd always said we wanted to go to Monaco for our wedding anniversary. Yeah. And there's a Japanese garden there. And we were sat in the Japanese garden where we got a phone call off the estate agent. Yeah saying, I've got a person here who um, is buying a house, yeah. but they can't sell their existing house. Yeah. And we thought it would suit you. So they gave me the, the number of the uh, property. And I had one on the one side and I owned one on the other side. So I knew okay, exactly so you knew what the well. property yeah. Yeah. was. Yeah. And I said to them, what's the lowest amount they will take on that property? And they said, they'll do it at this. And it, it was below market because yeah. they needed to move it. Yeah. And we said, yeah, the deal's done. Yeah. This was over the phone. And because we dealt with them before, we said, can you tell the broker? Can you tell yeah. our broker? So the broker rang us back within about half an hour. He said, the mortgage is in place. The valuer is on his way he will be at the property within an hour yeah. i'll ring you back as soon as the valuation's done he came back he said the valuation's done um we talked to the lawyer said he sent everything over to the lawyer we said to them do the deal for us they faxed a um contract to us yeah and we signed that contract and faxed it back this was all done while we were in the Japanese garden the hotel was next to the Japanese garden we went to pick up the fax from there signed it sent it back we went and sat back in the Japanese garden the property completed yeah within a few days we were still in Monaco we had not seen the property we yeah. hadn't done anything we just had an amazing team yeah who were able to they knew what we wanted how we did things and they had that property all set up, ready for us to come back and go and start work on it. Um, well, again, it just, it's just the importance of having the right team uh, around you to do these things. Do you manage your own properties or is it something that you um, uh, outsource to letting agents? We, again, letting agents and lawyers are not my favorites. 
Um, I'm trying to remedy that because now I live in Spain. I need letting agents to look after my properties in the UK. So um, I am trying to remedy that a little bit at the moment. But again, um, if they manage a lot of properties, I always found they didn't have the same urgency to let that property that I had. And it was one of the things that I tried to get through to solicitors and I tried to get through to estate agencies you need to do things in my time frame because you cost me money when you don't do it. And it's all, oh, we'll get around to it when we do it. And yeah. At so your peak I, in terms of the, the numbers of properties you've had, what's the, sort of the, the most properties you've had at any one particular time? 60 was the maximum. Okay. So, and we've down, we've downgraded that now. Okay. So based on that um, sort of theme, what is your, plans are going forward with, with property in particular i mean are you looking to, um, to carry still, on or are you looking I've to do some different strategies i've still got property there yeah um by to let now i live um in spain yeah um the holiday let market is quite a big market over here so i'm more hands-on to get into holiday let investing so we're still in um the property business yeah um, and I still prefer smaller properties rather than bigger properties. I've never been okay. into HMOs. Yeah. I've never been into um, commercial or apartment blocks or anything like that. Yeah. Um, I like small. Well, arguably, the risk is lower, isn't it, with um, yeah. uh, smaller units? Uh, should yeah. Say. So, um, the problem. What would? I should say there's a bit of a hiccup with me and um, holiday let properties because uh, I got one in France and it became my French home. I got one in Spain and it became my Spanish home. So the the holiday let market hasn't sort of uh, taken off yet. I keep falling in love with the uh, places I find and uh, they become my homes. (laughs) So I mean, how many properties you've got then abroad? Because obviously you you were property... um business head has allowed you to move uh, to Spain. Uh, yep. So you've got a property there. I know you've got a property, um, should we say near the Alps? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so is there any plans for any more properties then abroad? So... Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a few places. Um, I just look at the deals that are out there and if it's a good deal, yeah, I'll go for it. So is your plan to spend... X amount of months in Spain, X months uh, near the Alps, and obviously wherever these other properties are going to be, uh, time there as well. Yeah. And that's all stemmed from you um, coming back to the UK for basically a traumatic uh, sort of uh, issues, if you like, a family bereavement. And yeah. this, together with your uh, banking and Inland Revenue Bank uh, sort of... Um, knowledge and, and sort of um, history uh, has allowed you then to start this property yeah. uh, empire, which has now led you to be able to uh, live in Spain and near the Alps and everywhere else in the globe, I think, <laughs> yeah. eventually. Yeah. So I know you obviously teach other people in terms of uh, wealth, how to cre- uh, create and build their own wealth. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, so... I, while I was studying and learning as much as I could about investing, yeah. I found that there are like 
tens and thousands of ways to um, invest. But when you put it through a filter, it comes down into just four categories. You have business, property. I keep saying paper. I've always called it paper, but it's now digital. (laughs) Don't do much paper. Paper is easy to say. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which is your shares, your bonds, gilts, you know, your fixed terms, all those sorts of things. And then there's the cash section, which covers, um, for me, that covers peer-to-peer lending, crowdfunding, and um, gold and silver bullion. And what I do is I teach people to invest in all four categories. And how to do it themselves, because obviously this is educational based. Yeah, we so do. We, yeah. we don't advise. You, yeah, you okay. know that yeah. as um, you're an IFA yeah. and you are authorized yeah. to be able to give people financial advice. Yeah. I'm not, but I am able to teach them the yes. skills. All right, so that you and I fit into, we, it's complementary, if you like. Yeah. yeah. Um, when we had the crunch, the credit crunch in 2008, and we went into the, the big recession, uh, a lot of things changed. And it, would, it affected your industry and how you could actually relate to people. And there was a massive market of people who had a thousand pound, or they might have had five thousand pound who would go and find an IFA or who would go and find go to the bank and they would ask them for advice but when those rules came in those people sort of got swept under the rug they got forgotten because they've now got to have a certain amount of money to be able to come to you yeah so we tend to work in that area teach people we bring them up to a level where they need your services yeah 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 and it's something that's worked between us because i know um, we've referred several clients over to you and you've done the same for us because people have called you in and you've said no you need uh, education before you get to that level so it is a partnership and i've actually really appreciated that partnership because there are many ifas out there who say no you can't do what you're doing they put this barrier up and they don't like what we're doing but they don't actually realize we get people to the level where they need their services and they can't deal with those people i think people have to start somewhere this this stuff isn't automatically taught in schools and obviously you know the the people you tend to deal with uh, are all different age groups anyway so they've not had this uh, type of education so people uh now, it's great for people to have uh, this type of education uh, so they can learn to do things themselves. Uh, at the end of the day, all people want to do is to have a better life. And yeah. uh, so I don't see, uh, personally, I don't see any problems in doing that. Yes, you can't give um, you know, advice, uh, certainly not regulated advice, uh, but you can guide people and uh, show them how it's done. And then obviously they can go off and do that themselves. Yeah. So, okay. So how do you actually deliver that? Is that all now online because of uh, COVID yeah, and where you live? Or? A, it used to be in a classroom yeah. and we had different ways of doing things. Um, now that it's moved online, the way it works is um, we have um, the key program is called the mastermind groups. Okay. And we have a, a maximum 10, 12 people 
in those groups. So we keep them small so that we can do a lot more work with them. And they get a module, yeah, which is whatever the topic is that we're talking about. They get a video that goes with that, which is almost like the lesson about yeah. the module. Yeah. And then we do a Zoom call, which is a two-hour Zoom call. And the first hour of the Zoom call is going through uh, what people have done from the previous month. Um, I set them homework every month, and I'm checking that they've done the homework. Missed the only <laughs> the only way they're going to advance is if they do the homework. Yeah. So um, they get homework to do. If they've come across any problems or if they needed any further guidance on anything, then um, that's what we have in the discussion in the groups. So yeah. The idea is that the group help to support one another. Yeah. And then the second part, the second hour, is reinforcing and going through the key points of what is in the new modules that they've got. And um, like, you know, a lot of um, investments, not so much the skills, but more the mindset of people. You have to teach them some skills, but 80% of it is mindset. Yeah, so I, there's, I, I there's quite a bit working with people around the mindset, um, getting people out of, oh, I can't do that, to, yes, you can do that, yeah. or... Um, I don't know anything about money. It goes straight over my head to, mm. well, now you're going to learn about money and we're going to teach you and you're going to understand it. Yeah. So there is a lot of mindset in there. There is a very smaller, like I said, 20% of the course is about yeah. the skills. So the, yeah. the module tends to be the skill side yeah. where we spend a small part on it, but the rest is getting people's minds into the right place to be able to go and do things and motivate them to go and do it. Okay, brilliant. And so the, uh, sorry, that, that's our entry level course. Yeah. Then what we've started doing now is we have what we call investment clubs. Yeah. And we have just uh, launched um, in partnership with um, another company, yeah. um, investment clubs in the US. Okay. And that is committing people to a certain amount of money uh, they pull their money together, they go and buy shares together. So the club becomes an official partnership. Yeah. Everybody has an equal share in that partnership, or it becomes a limited company, whichever, whatever the investment is, we're working on it. Um, you know, if we're doing property or business, it's a limited company. Yeah. If we're doing um, shares, bullion, we tend to do partnerships. Okay. And um, each month we get together, uh, there's training, uh, everybody's involved, everybody's got a responsibility in running that club. So, you know, you have a meeting manager, you have a secretary, you have a um, treasurer who looks after the bank account, you have a trader, um, we appoint someone as the auditor, we have yeah. backups in case one person can't so, get there. So set up as a proper business, really. So. Everybody's involved in yeah. it and they invest together and it's working quite well at the moment uh it will see how that goes it's uh, we see how how it, that evolves and maybe we'll have a follow-up um, call uh, to see how that's going in maybe six well the, the u.s one uh it was a bit slow to get off because um 
getting off the ground because of COVID. Every country was at a different level and um, paperwork was going back and forth, but it, it wasn't progressing because that department was closed and things. So the first one we did in the US was a bit slow getting off the ground. Uh, but last month they did their first trade, went and bought their first shares. So everybody's chomping at the bit now, want to get some more money in there so we can go and buy the next lot of shares. Yeah, and um, it gives them the experience of doing things like well, that. Well, in theory, it should be a safe, safe place to do things because you're doing it as a group. Yeah. Uh, you're learning from each other. And obviously, there's somebody in that group as well that's, um, should we say, leading the way uh, as well. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it seems like a it's safe environment for you to do it. One of the areas we found is that people lack the confidence to go and do something on their yeah. own. And so the investment clubs have been like that bridge to uh, move them into um, doing that particular type of investing. And the thing that's interesting is I'm getting messages off people now saying, when are you starting the next one? When are you starting the next one? Great. And I haven't got plans because I need a certain number of people <laughs> to do that. So I need to, uh, yeah. Well, perhaps you can get uh, people to uh, bring a friend and I'll grow them quicker. So. Yeah, that option's there. It's, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's a good way to grow. It's a good way to learn. And it's, uh, like you said, it's a safer environment because yeah. you're, you're doing things together and you've all got an equal share in it, what's happening. Yeah. Um, I know you're an international author and I know you've written uh, a number of books. So yeah. can you sort of touch on... Uh, the, the types of books that you've written um, and obviously how, how they help people. Okay, so I write investing books, mainly yeah. investing books. Yeah. And it started back in um, 2003 yeah. because I'd made my money. I retired, uh, didn't have to work again. <laughs> Boy, was it boring. <laughs> you know, so... Um, I thought, what am I going to do? And I'd, I'd always had an interest in writing. My dad wrote as well, so um, I'd inherited that side of it. So I started thinking about how I could get information out to people. Um, I wasn't interested in doing training and things like that. I just wanted to write. So I started creating information products. Okay. And I wrote a book. I'd create an audio file to go with it and then support products and that was how I first got into writing information products and writing a book and then online I was then able to self-publish my books right, okay. and that um, allowed me then to get the books out into the marketplace at a, a, a faster rate than I could through information products so in total now, I've written uh, 21 books. Uh, most of them have some sort of time sensitivity around them. So they come out, yeah. they're taken off the market when yeah. they become obsolete because yeah. the world changes. Yes. Um, I've written books on property, how to get in property investing, and it's, it's always based on what I do. So it's not theory. It's exactly what I, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So I do um, property. Um, I've done um, share books. Um, I haven't done a gold and silver one. That's coming. Uh, during the last recession, I wrote more generic books about yeah. investing. 
and they were really big sellers because they uh, were picked up and people who were struggling financially saw, saw that book and they'd go and buy it. Yeah. In 2014, um, I won an award in America for my books. Well done, I didn't know that. So. <laughs> and that really exploded the American market for me and that, that allowed the um, sales to expand on the books. So give us a flavor in terms of the, the countries that you, these books are sold in. Because I know this is quite diverse and I know there's uh, one uh, particular country which uh, might surprise people. So I have a request. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I have UK and Ireland, um, Canada, America, New Zealand, Australia, um, India was um, a market. Yeah, India came uh, online about the middle of last year. Got my first sales going through there. Uh, I've got Japan. And that's the one that's really interesting because I do put the request out that if you're in Japan, can you order a book so I can see where it looks like in Japanese? <laughs> Have you seen whenever one I try to order a book, I only get the author's <laughs> copy. I don't get a translated copy. <laughs> And I have told Amazon that they can automatically translate the books for me. So um, uh, I've sold in France and uh, Portugal, Italy, I think, and South Africa. So I think they're the countries. Oh, and Mexico. I forgot Mexico right, okay. in there as well. Yeah. So, yeah, they're slowly expanding into quite a few countries. So is the plan now to have a property in every one of those countries? <laughs> that depends. <laughs> the business is being expanded. Yeah. And I started franchising the business. Um, it's got franchisees in the UK and yeah. Ireland. Yeah. And some countries are not that grand for putting a franchise into. Okay. The cost of setting up is a bit prohibitive uh, to start with. So we've started licensing coaches into right. those areas. Um, and I've got a coach now that covers Mexico and America, which is uh, quite interesting. <laughs> He's got dual nationality and he lives right on the border. Listen to your honor. And he goes back and forth across the border. So, uh, he says, yeah, I can work America. I can work, um, Mexico. It doesn't bother me because I do go back and forth. So yeah, it's uh, quite interesting the way it's growing and, with the books, I do run a um, desktop publisher course, which teaches people how to uh, write books, yeah. books, audio books, and get them out in the market. Yeah, and we got a licensed coach just uh, this week. We've made the announcement. Uh, she's an experienced journalist, an editor, and a ghostwriter. And she's now coming in to uh, run that program for us. So we're uh, hoping to expand that a lot further. Brilliant. I'll wait until that, that uh, a, notification comes up then. It's a skill that works under business. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it's all about giving people learning opportunities in business, property, shares, bullion. Brilliant. Um, we're coming towards the end. Um, you are clearly building a uh, global business as well as um, um, homes in most parts of the, of the world. 
So I think probably one goes hand in hand. Um, But uh, there's a few questions I like to ask people. One is, um, who has been the most influential person in your life? I've I've been fortunate because I've had a lot of fantastic mentors. Um, I don't know if you read my book, Phoenix, which is my latest book. That I haven't. I apologize. Um, I talk about mentorship in there and some of the people that have been mentors for me. Obviously, my mum and dad have been major influences. My mum, I was born in the 50s. That was the era where women were expected to stay home, have kids. And the husband went out to work and he... um, you know, he he's kept the roof over the head and food on the table and the wife looked after the house and all that. But I had a mum who said, you can absolutely go and do whatever you want to do. So that was fantastic. It, it, she didn't want me to be characterised to whatever the era was. It was go and do what you want to do. My dad taught me there's no such word as can't. And whenever I said to him, I can't do something, he had a dictionary and the word can't was not in there. He'd <laughs> give me the dictionary and he'd say, look it up. I'd say, I can't find it. And he said, no, there's no such word as can't. There's only that you don't want to do it or you don't know how to do it. If you don't want to do it, get off your backside, go and do it. If you don't know how to do it, then find someone who can help you. And I have always gone and found someone who can help me take the take what I want to do to the next level. And I have had amazing coaches. I think that's a key point. Um, None of us are born with this knowledge or this or these skill sets. Um, But that knowledge and skill sets are out there. uh, And uh, it's up to us as individuals to go out and, and find them. You know, I, you look at some of the mentors I had. Yeah. I played tennis as a kid. Yeah. Beyond Borg yeah. was a, Beyond Borg came down and taught me something that just put my game in a whole different stratosphere. You know, um, business-wise, uh, Brad Sugars, who runs Action Coach. Yeah. Um, he was my first business mentor. Right, okay. I, um, I, so I've had... Brad Sugars, there was um, Robert Kiyosaki, obviously. Um, Andrew Reynolds taught me all about information products, and he's mega in the industry. Uh, I'm working with Pat Slattery now, and Pat's opened up an enormous number of doors for me and got um, access to allow me to expand the business into different countries and given me the contacts I needed. Um, he's also, when I've wanted to develop the business, if yeah. I haven't had the people, like with the investment club, yeah. he opened the doors for the investment club. Yeah. So, you know, it's finding the right people that can get you where you want to go. And I've, I've always not, I say always, I've never been afraid to go and say, I don't know how to do this. I need someone to show me what to do. Yeah. I think you got a new mantra, uh, Karen. There's no such word as count. So exactly. Uh, yeah, that's wonderful. I think what it does to me is that anybody um, with the right mindset, which you've touched on earlier, uh, with an idea, 
uh, can, if they don't know uh, or have the skills themselves, uh, they can uh, find other people uh, as mentors and uh, they can still achieve those dreams um, if they put their mind to it and go for it. Anybody can do anything they want and they can have anything they want in life. Yeah, absolutely. So I talk Just to you. Just go for it. All right. Well, again, on, on a similar theme, this is my last question for you. <laughs> uh, this is my uh, TT Wealth question. So uh, what does wealth mean to you? To me, wealth is the freedom to be able to do whatever I want to do when I want to do it. And you have, have uh, got the perfect example because that's exactly how you live your life. Yeah, uh, you know, I've, I've been fortunate. I've lived in different countries. Yeah. I can go and do what I want. I don't have to work. I work because I choose to work. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. And anybody can have that. They just need that desire to take the first step. Yeah. and go and, and find the people and it's it's exactly the same like if people want to retire they want to have their pensions yeah. they got to go and see you because yeah. you know you can put things in place from the time a kid is born you can put something in place that will guarantee that kid will actually have a pension when they're older <laughs> if somebody starts at an early age where there's uh, you know parents doing doing some form of savings for them or somebody starts you know somebody leaves school or whatever uh, and if you start early, you can um, build, should we say, a substantial amount of um, savings and investments. Uh, or at the same time, you can build a business from the early uh, stages, you know, at an yeah. early age and create something, you know, not just a lifestyle business, but you can create something really substantial. Uh, but I think that um, uh, people just need to start. I was talking to a client yesterday yeah. and the client's got a 16 year old child and um, she said, look, my kid is absolutely chomping at the bit to get into property, yeah. has managed to save money to get into property, um, but can't do anything until they're 18. And I said to them, do you realize they can own a company at the age of 16? And they can go and start buying property at the age of 16 if they're ready to do it. Yeah. And she didn't know that. You know, yeah. there you, is so much out there. Yeah. Well, you, people... If it's a question of getting the knowledge between now and 18, if that was the barrier, then you know, now, now is the time to do it. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So, Karen, um, if people wanted to find you, which I'm sure they will, <laughs> then where, where will they be able to find you? Um, you know, in terms of all the things that you do? Probably the best place would be my um, website, okay. which is karennewton.co.uk. Okay. And on there, you will find links to uh, the Facebook training that we do, to yeah. the YouTube channel that we have. Um, yeah, it's like the, the signpost that will point oh, you in all the different directions. So that's karennewton.co.uk. Okay. I will put the link to that on the, uh, the show notes so people will be able to find that. So Karen, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. Your, your, your story is fascinating. I know 
bits about your story uh, because obviously we talk on a regular basis, uh, etc. Um, but the more we talk, the more I uncover new things, <laughs> and um, and every time I uncover new things, it always provides me with um, another dimension to you, should we say? And I think uh, you are a perfect example uh, for those who. Um, with, as in your own words, uh, average, should we say, uh, ability or uh, sort of um, academic ability, certainly, uh, can achieve whatever you want to in life if you have the right mindset and you seek out people uh, that can help you achieve that dream. And that works both ways, Tony, because you and I have done a few interviews. You know, yeah. I've done this one for you. You do interviews yeah. for me. Yeah. And it's the same Every time we talk, I learn something more about yeah. the different areas that you get into. I think you and I have to have a series of um, interviews to go through all the knowledge that you and I have got between us. Uh, I think that will be a never-ending kind. So. <laughs> <laughs> Especially with the reviews that we've, uh, we've both been, uh, should we say, guiding other people. So, Yeah. All right, well, it's been a really, real pleasure today. Thank you so much. And uh, good luck with everything that you're doing. Uh, I'm sure it will go from strength to strength and you'll have lots of other properties uh, around the world. Thank you very much. And uh, <laughs> it's really great to be on here. All right, great. All right. Catch up soon and take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode. You can find links to everything that we've discussed in the show notes. And if you'd like to know more about what I do, or see more great money tips to build a secure and a happy lifestyle, then you can find all of these on my website, ttwealth.co.uk, or my YouTube channel, TTWealth. If you want to work with me, then why not book a free 30-minute call to find out how. You can also follow me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I also produce a bi-monthly newsletter, TTWealth News, which contains practical money tips, that is free for you to download from my website. And if you're enjoying this podcast, don't hesitate to leave a review. Of course, the more stars, the better. And equally, sharing is caring. So if you've heard something that you've enjoyed and you think will benefit someone you know, then please do share with them. I'm sure they will appreciate it. So it's goodbye until next time. And remember, live for today, invest for tomorrow.